Welcome back to the Running Wine Mom podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Slinsky, aka The Running Wine Mom. Today, we have a treat for all the thriller enthusiasts out there. We're diving deep into the world of suspense, mystery, and psychological thrillers with a brilliant author who's been making waves in the literary scene. She's the New York Times, USA Today, and internationally best-selling author of not one, but two gripping novels that have left readers on the edge of their seats. Her debut novel, A Flicker in the Dark, was a finalist for numerous awards, and her latest release, All the Dangerous Things, has been earning accolades and praises from critics and readers alike. But that's not all. Our guest today has another book, Only If You're Lucky, set to release in January, and we can't wait to get a sneak peek into what promises to be another page turner. So pour yourself a glass of your favorite wine, settle in, and get ready for a riveting conversation as we sit down with the incredible Stacey Willingham. We explore her writing process, the dark and complex worlds she creates, and the secrets behind crafting mind-bending thrillers that keeps us up all night. Welcome, Stacey. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited. Uh, as I was just saying, I loved both of your books. Got Thank through you. them so quickly. So I'm so excited to talk about them and your upcoming book as well. But before we, get in, before we get into that, to start each episode, we have our wine, wine, and win of the week segment. Mm -hmm. This is where we share our favorite bottle of wine about something that's been bothering us and celebrate our recent victories. So grab a glass, take a deep breath, and let's get started. What is your wine, W-I-N-E of the week? All right, I'm going to say my wine of the week is a new uh, Cabernet that I tried last weekend called uh, Postmark by in Paso Robles, California. It's the first time I've ever had it, but it was fantastic, and I drank, like, almost the whole bottle by myself. Then <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. And what's your W-H-I-N-E of the week? So my, I'm going to say my W-H-I-N-E wine and my win of the week are kind of the same thing, but... Um, my wine turned into a win, which is great. So I'm currently writing my fourth book, and Ooh. I have been um, slogging through writer's block <laughs> lately. And um, it's not so much writer's block as, like, I just can't – I've had a really hard time getting around this one bump in the story, and um, and I finally I finally got over the bump today. So That's I, awesome. Thank you. So I'm going to say my wine of the week has been writer's block with this fourth book but my win of the week is finally getting over the writers today <laughs> well i am excited as i'm excited to hear that you have a fourth book that's awesome i do yes i do <laughs> um and so i always like to ask my guests what is one struggle you've overcome leading to where you are now and what is one thing that you're most proud of in life oh man um so one struggle i would say is the you know i know you've talked to a lot of authors on your podcast and you've probably heard this over and over again but um the world of publishing and getting published is really a tough, a tough battle, and it's filled with a lot of, um, a lot of rejection, a lot of self doubt, and um, you know, a flicker in the dark. My debut has been really, you know, more successful than my wildest dreams, but it took about seven years to get there. And wow, um, yeah, and it's it's actually it's my first published book, but it's not the first book I've ever written. I wrote another book before Flicker that I was never able to get published. I couldn't even get an agent for it. Um, and I got over a hundred agent rejections over the course of five years before I finally gave up on that book and switched over to a flicker in the dark. So I would say the, the biggest struggle is just kind of getting my foot in the door and not giving up. Um, but I think that's also the thing I'm most proud of is not giving up and um, being able to turn this kind of this passion and this hobby of mine into my career. It's, it's a dream come true. 
That's amazing. And um, that is something similar to pretty much all of the authors that I've spoken to. You kind of think, oh, you'll be 22 with this debut novel, living in a big city, like kind of Hallmark movie-esque. Yeah. And every single one of them has been like, we worked so hard to get to where we are. And I just think that takes so much dedication and mental um, perseverance, which is awesome. Yeah, it really does. I mean, you hear those stories, you know, of course, of people who like have their very first book published or every agent they send it to wants it. And I, and I do know I've, um, I consider myself pretty lucky because my debut did have a lot of success. Um, but yeah, it's, there's this behind the scenes grind that readers don't see. And so every time you get to get together with another author and kind of swap stories, uh, it's always fun because you realize no matter how successful someone is and how much you admire and look up to their work, we all kind of have a similar background of just having to wade through the rejections and not give up to finally get to where we are. Yeah, the uh, the no's have, are like definitely something that are not for the weak, I guess. <laughs> so yeah. that's something you should be really proud of. Yeah. Um, In a way, it does. Oh, sorry. I was gonna no, say no, way, no. It, go ahead. It, it does kind of prepare you a bit for when you're published, though, because something I, I have noticed is um, the rejection never quite stops. I mean, you're even once you're published, you know, some readers love your book, some readers mm-hmm. don't. And so those reviews are kind of a form of mini rejection in and of itself. And so the whole process, you know, thickens your skin a bit. So once you finally are published, you can handle that stuff a little easier. Yeah, I'm sure that's like super hard to hear because I found your book through recommendation of people who I'm in the Peloton Mom book club. And then I also just joined another one about um, the psychological thrillers because I I love that genre. And um, that's how I get all my books. It's mostly all positive, which is good. Um, Mm -hmm. But then, you know, you do always think of all the books that people recommend. You know, there's always someone in there that like, oh, yeah. That wasn't for me. Like, just keep scrolling, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, books are subjective, which is part of the reason yeah. why it's so hard to get published in the first place, because you have to right. find that one agent who, and that one editor who loves it. And, um, and yeah, there, it's just, it's an art form. No one's ever going to love everything they come right. across. Um, all right. So this is the running wine, mom. I like to start mm-hmm. with a little fitness. What is your favorite way to stay active? So it's funny you just mentioned the Peloton uh, Moms Book Club. I I used to be an avid uh, Orange Theory girl, and I do I do love Orange Theory. I miss it sometimes, but I think I I found a couple years ago once I started uh, working from home and being self employed that I needed to do something different every day just to kind of break up the monotony of working out. And I I found that. Um, doing something different is what I need to do. So I do have a, I have a Peloton. I do a Peloton a couple times a week. I play tennis. I do yoga and hot Pilates. Uh, I jog. So as long as I'm doing something every day that I, I usually feel good and I try not to do the same thing two days in a row. Yeah. I, I have never done orange theory. I've done like so many orange theory esque type Mm-hmm. things but I've, I don't think I've ever done an orange theory class but I know people like love them so much yeah they're uh, fun they're 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 intense yeah <laughs> they're fun and that's the thing that I always say I love about Peloton is like there is so many like they have boot camps that are I guess similar to um, yeah. orange theory but like you know t- this morning I did a lifting one yesterday I did an outdoor run it's like you can do all different like things yeah. which is nice that's yep. the way I am too I'm like I can't do the same thing every single day yeah yeah I'm the same way so how do you stay motivated to maintain your own fitness routine? 
Um, you know, for me, I feel like I've been trying to focus over the last couple of years more on how I feel, like feeling mm-hmm. energized, feeling healthy, feeling uh, like mentally clear. Um, again, I'll go back to um, I'm a full time writer now, which means I um, I work from home and I'm by myself pretty much just staring at my computer and in my own <laughs> head for like out eight plus hours at a time. And if I don't get some activity in, mm-hmm. I find it really starts to affect my mental clarity. So right. um yeah, so for me, it's all about, like, if I just start to feel that fog, like, descend mm-hmm. over my mind, I'm like, all right, it's time to get a little activity in, and it always makes me feel better. Yes. Uh, and what struggles do you have to stay healthy and fit? Uh, just like everyone, my motivation kind of waxes and wanes. There's some yeah. days where I just really don't feel it, and um, I try to give myself a little grace and maybe just take my dog for a walk or something on those days, um, or just not do anything at all. That's fine, too. Yesterday, I spent the majority of the day on the couch because that's what Sundays are for. <laughs> that they and, are. Uh, yeah. Um, I'll also say my, my job is very deadline driven. And so sometimes I do find that I feel guilty, like standing up for my computer to take an hour for myself because I feel mm-hmm. like I should be working instead. But it kind of goes back to that knowledge of my work will be better if I can get outside and get some movement in. So I try mm-hmm. to keep that in mind when I feel guilty about it. And, you know, I feel the motivation waning. Yeah. I just read something about like, if you do even like a 30 minute workout a day, it's a very small percentage of your day. And then maybe like 3% of your day, which means of the whole week, when you add it all up, it's such a small percentage of your week to be better, just say like 97% of the time by getting in that 30 minutes a day is so important. It is Um, crazy how much of a small, you know, just like to your point, 30 minutes makes such a big difference for me. It really does. I like last week was not on my regular fitness regimen and I was going bonkers. It was yeah. like, so, so wildly noticeable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, get uh, it. I will say too, I, so you mentioned challenges. I've also been, I, I noticed the older I get, the, the more I get injured, <laughs> like doing yeah. the smallest little things. And I've been dealing with a tweaked lower back for the last oh, no. like month. Yeah. And, um, and so my, my workouts have been less intense lately than they have been because I'm trying to stay active, but I'm trying not to aggravate it. I'm trying to heal, you know, and right. I I noticed too that I'm going crazy. It's like I, I can't push myself the way I normally can. And it's making me feel so just like antsy, internally antsy. Yes, I get that. It's like you can't do what you want to do, but mm-hmm. you, you can't or you won't be able to do that again. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> So I guess that kind of, my next question was going to be about your relationship between mental health and physical fitness, but I think you kind of like hit that on the head that it's so important for, you know, your, your mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, let's get into some personal uh, stuff and about your book. So I just saw on your Instagram, you were just inducted into the University of Georgia's 40 Under 40. Yeah. Thank you. That make you feel that's such a great achievement. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that was amazing. I mean, I so I graduated in uh, 2013. So this is actually okay. my 10 year, uh, my 10 year anniversary, I guess, of graduating from college. And um, yeah, it, it was pretty surreal, to be honest, to be back there. Um, on the one hand, it doesn't feel like I've been out of college for 10 years. <laughs> but on the yeah. other hand, in a lot of ways, it does. Yeah, um, being back on campus and seeing how much it's changed. Um, but yeah, it was it was amazing. I mean, a lot of really wonderful things happened to me 
uh, at UGA. And um, well, I'm sure we'll get into this later, but my third book that's coming out in January is a college campus thriller uh, inspired by the house that I lived in at UGA when I was a student there. So oh. it was a, a pretty, yeah, a pretty full circle moment to be back and, and kind of get that award and um, just think about how much has changed in the 10 years since I graduated. That's so cool. Um, that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank what a great you. Accomplishment. Um, so you. my next thing is you are based in Charleston, mm -hmm. right? My yep. aunt and uncle moved to um, Mount Pleasant like four or five years ago. So I've been down yeah. like a few times and I'm like, I have to ask, what is your favorite restaurant? Because I get so oh. overwhelmed every time I go down there. I'm like, I don't know which one to go to. We have yeah. so many. I get overwhelmed too. It's I've lived here uh, on and off for over 20 years now. Wow. Um, and I still get overwhelmed. The food here is phenomenal. We're very so spoiled. Yeah, yeah. But I will say, I think my favorite, my go-to recommendation when anyone asks is um, a restaurant called Our Kitchen. Have you heard of it? Okay. I don't know if I, I don't think we were there before. They're kind of a, like a hidden local gem, which is why I, I like to recommend it um, because they mm -hmm. call themselves it's on Rutledge, so our okay. kitchen is short for Rutledge Kitchen, and they say they're a kitchen, not a restaurant. So it's very oh. intimate. Um, it's very small. They only have two seatings a night, and it's maybe oh. 15, 20 people in the restaurant at a time. Um, oh, that's so yeah. cool. And the, the menu changes um, every day. The chefs like go to the farmer's market in the morning, get all the fresh oh food, make the menu that morning, and then serve you a five-course meal in the, in the evening. And it's, the, the food is fantastic, and it's just a really intimate, cool experience. I am definitely going to be going there when I go back again because you that's really, right up my alley. It's so good. You can't go wrong. You never get the same meal twice. So I've been there yeah. so many times, and it's always so good. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we went mm -hmm. we went to Husk, I know, oh, yeah. the one time, which was so good. Um, and then one of my other favorite things was on top of the Dewberry to, at the cocktail bar. It yes. overlooks the whole city, which was really nice. But like, yeah. I, I also loved Isle of Palms so much and Shem Creek were just so fun when we got to visit those. So yeah. I love it down there so much. <laughs> yeah, 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 me too. There's, I mean, it's neat. There's a lot of different, I guess like any city, uh, a lot of different boroughs, you know, so you can yeah. go to all the different beaches that have a different vibe to them. Mm -hmm. And Shum Creek has a very different vibe. Downtown has a different vibe. So it's, depending on whatever mood you're in, you can kind of get it all here, which I love. Yes. I was like so excited to see that you lived there. I was like, oh, I love mm. that town so much. Yeah. I grew um, up in Mount Pleasant, so. Oh, okay. That's, yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, it's really cool there. It's like so central to, I mean, they're so close to Isle of Palms and then yeah. to Charleston. They're always at <laughs> restaurants and bars and having so much fun. Mm -hmm. So it's a good place. It's a fun city. Um, so how about, how about you tell the listeners, how did you first get into writing? Yeah, sure. So I, um, I've always loved writing from as early as I can remember, really, when I was a kid. Well, funny enough, my <laughs> sister is a couple years older than me. And we were kind of attached at the hip when we were growing up. And um, she went to school uh, before I did, obviously, since she was older. And when she came home from school, she would sit me down and teach me everything that she had learned that day and kind of just, like, play school with me. Yeah. yeah. And um, so she taught me how to read and write when I was really young. And I have loved it ever since. Um, so we used to write like little short stories and screenplays together when we were kids. And then um, in high school, I joined my high school newspaper 
and really fell in love with like interviewing people and learning their stories and finding a unique way to tell their stories. So I thought I wanted to be a journalist and went to UGA to study magazine journalism. Um, and I loved it. I love journalism and I still do. But when I graduated, I had a hard time finding a job at a magazine. So I got into um, advertising. I started working as a copywriter um, and I did like social media marketing and things like that. And I was doing freelance journalism on the side and kind of created like a little side business of just writing these feature articles and selling them for various magazines. And um, I realized that the one thing that I always noticed is that my articles were always going way over my allotted word count. And my editors were slashing all the like really flowery descriptive language. And they were like, this is beautiful, but there's just not enough room on the page. Like it's just too long. Right. And so I started thinking that maybe creative writing was what I wanted to do and not just hard journalism. Um, I loved writing long form articles, like really, really long descriptive articles. So one day, I think I was 20, 22 maybe when I um, sat down and decided to start writing a book just to see if I would enjoy it. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I found that I loved it and I would come home from work every day and work on it in my uh in my bedroom in my apartment and you know I didn't tell a soul what I was doing didn't tell my roommate didn't tell anyone I was just like so self-conscious about it and um eventually I just realized I really loved it and I wanted to learn more so I went to um I, I went to grad school and I kept my job in Atlanta. So I went to grad school at night. I did night classes and weekend classes and online classes. And my I, my idea was that I would turn in that book that I was started writing as my thesis. So I would have three years to get it done. And I would have a whole team of thesis advisors to, you know, read it and critique it and tell me what to do next. And, um, and yeah, and I did that. So I wrote that book in three years. And um my thesis advisors loved it. And they said, you know, I think you have a good shot at getting this published. But um, like I had told you previously, I then spent several years getting uh, rejected by 100 agents and that book never did get published. But it was my practice novel, which eventually <laughs> led to the idea of a flicker in the dark. So that's how, how I got my start. <laughs> so was that book a psychological thriller as well? Or was it yes. totally? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, awesome. yeah, it was very different than the the books that I've um, had published in terms of the how it was written and the setting and stuff like that. But yeah, it was a psychological thriller. Yeah, and that was kind of going to be like what my next question is: like, what draws you to that thriller genre and like those themes? Yeah, you know, I've always loved loved both scary stories and psychology, and I feel like thrillers combine those perfectly. Mm -hmm. um, I took an abnormal psychology class when I was in college, and I find just the whole concept of like nature versus nurture and decision making and the concept of like psychopaths and sociopaths and mm -hmm. why people act in the ways they do. I've always been interested in that. And so I like to combine that element with just kind of like something creepy that keeps people on the edges of their seats. Um, I was, you know, I, I mentioned growing up loving reading and writing, but I was also raised on, uh, my, I watched a lot of like Columbo and Alfred Hitchcock and the Twilight mm. Zone with my parents when I grew up. So I think it's just kind of, it's, that's just kind of been baked into me from an early age. 
So I just saw something and it was a meme of, um, did you ever watch Harriet the Spy when you were younger? Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. it was like, it was like, if, if you don't know who this is and you say you're into crew try or true crime, like you don't even know or something. And I was cracking up. So I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, you know, I, that's probably where it started. You know, my love for it was with Harriet the Spy or um, yeah, I remember even having, when I was a kid, a notebook like her. And you mm -hmm. remember the way she used to label the corners? And I did the yeah. exact same thing. And I would write down my observations. So it probably did start with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also in your books, you have um, strong, complex female characters. How do you approach creating them, um, especially, you know, in the female protagonist sense? So I hope my books always have a, a propulsive plot and twist endings and stuff like that. But for me, I, I find my books are mostly character driven. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason for that is because for me, at least in my personal opinion, the, the thing that makes a book really propulsive and something that sucks me in and a book that makes me care is a protagonist that feels human and real. And so I mm -hmm. try to first start with my characters. Um, a flicker in the dark, all the dangerous things, and only if you're lucky, always kind of started with this big idea in this character at the center. And before I even get started, I try to put myself in that main character's shoes and flesh them out completely, which means I give them a family, I give them a backstory, which usually involves some kind of childhood trauma that they're trying yeah. to work out. Um, you know, they have they have goals and motivations and flaws and everything that I that a real person has um and then i try to just keep that in mind the whole time i'm writing so everything that they do everything that they say is always tied into what you know what that key motivation is what they went through when they were younger what what they're trying to accomplish at the root of the story um and in terms of making them female i think just you know that old adage right which you know uh, I, you know i'm a I'm a female 30 something. So thus far, all my main characters have been female 30 somethings, except for my third book features a bunch of uh, teenagers, which is a little different. But um, okay. it's just easier to kind of inject to your own personal. Yeah, feel right what feelings. you know. Yeah. Exactly. You're right what you know. So that's awesome. And then also, you do always try to have twisty plots. How do you go about figuring those? Do you know that from the beginning or do you kind of along the way there? Yeah, a little bit of both. Um, so I'm definitely a pantser, which you've talked to enough uh, authors by now. I'm sure you know the difference between plotters and pantsers. But I, <laughs> I'm not a big outliner. I don't plot. Um, I've tried to do that before, and it just never really worked out for me. But I, I have a big idea. Well, I kind of call my big idea. Um, so for example, a flicker in the dark, the big idea was, you know, what would it be like to be the daughter of a serial killer? And what would you do if his crime started happening again? For all the dangerous things, it was, what would it be like to be trapped inside the mind of a sleep-deprived mother who was desperately searching for her missing son? It's kind of just like something I can sum up in a sentence. Um, but what makes me interested enough in that big idea to spend the next couple years of my life on it is the twist. And so as soon as that big idea, the, I have my big idea, I have my main protagonist, I've been thinking about him for months. I'm learning who they are and who's in their life and what their family looks like. And eventually I come up with a twist. And if the twist is really good and satisfying and lends itself to like the themes that I want to explore, that's what makes me decide to sit down and actually write the book. But um, 
everything in the middle, I don't know. I have no idea <laughs> what's going to happen. So it's uh, kind of this like terrifying uh, moment of sitting down and staring at an empty Word doc and being like, okay, I'm on Word 1 and I know yeah. what's going to happen on Word 100,000, but like what's going to happen in the middle? Yeah. And um, and then, the yeah, the process is just kind of figuring out all the twists and turns that get me to the ultimate one. Yeah, I feel like if if I were a writer, that's how I would probably have to do it. Like, I feel like I'd get too confused with all the plots. Like, give me the beginning, give me the end, and then I can yeah. fill everything else. In. Yeah, so many of the writers, I'm just always in awe of hearing their uh, the way they outline and the way they mm-hmm. plot. But for me, I come up with all the details and the micro twists, if you will, as I go. Um, mm-hmm. I find I just kind of write without direction. And then eventually a character will say something or do something or something in the setting will stand out to me. And then I'll realize it's significant. And then that'll lead to another little subplot or something like Mm -hmm. that. And I don't, I've just, I've never been able to sit down and outline that. I always have to write it for it to reveal itself to me. Um, It's fascinating to me the way different authors work and how it's all, it's all, personal pre- the, I was interviewing the author of Hidden Pictures and he was saying that he used to do the plot he used to do the plots and he's like then yeah. he started the beginning and the end and he's like I I could have saved myself seven years like if I yeah. would have just done that from the beginning yeah oh I love Hidden Pictures that book's fantastic but yeah, it's, yeah. I, I do find when I try to meticulously outline I just am, ugh, it drives me nuts and then and then when I start sit down to start writing, the book vastly changes from the outline anyway. So then I'm like, well, that was a waste of time. That was a waste of time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so are there any authors or books that like have had a significant impact on your writing or inspired you into the thriller genre besides Twilight Zone and Alfred? And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, gosh, so many authors, so many different authors have inspired me. But I'll say the main ones that come to mind are um, in high school, I read Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. And that was the book that made me want to be a writer. Um, Really, back then, I I wanted to be a journalist. But I remember thinking that something like that would be really cool to write some kind of true crime book. Mm -hmm. Um, And I still think that would be really cool. But uh, that In Cold Blood and Truman Capote was the real true inspiration that led me to want to um, do this as a career. And then uh, Gillian Flynn has also been a huge inspiration for me. Mm-hmm. Her books, I think, just are the perfect example of a thriller that is a page turner, but it's also just so gorgeously written. She's mm-hmm. really, really managed to weave like just descriptive writing and beautiful prose with uh a fast paced plot, which is really hard to yeah. do. Um, and yeah, so I constantly look up to her and Stephen King's on writing is another book that I read. Um, I love his, his fiction, but that book on writing, it's kind of a memoir slash like how to okay. write book, <laughs> which is, oh. yeah, it's very good. And it was, it's very, um, inspiring as a, as a, as a writer, yeah. as a writer. Yeah. It's really good. That's awesome. They're all great. Um, All right. So let's get into A Flicker in the Dark. First of all, how did it feel to have your debut novel receive so many awards and the recognition that it got? Uh, I mean, it was great. Of course, it was um, it was fantastic. I feel like you have to authors always kind of joke that you have to have like some at least some sort of like delusional 
uh, hope in yourself to, in order to keep writing for so many years without any payoff. Like you have to be yeah. a little delusional <laughs> and hope that what you're writing is actually any good with, with yeah. zero external evidence. Um, so I, I was hoping that it was good and I felt like it was good. And I was like, like I think this, I think this could get published, but um, I had, I didn't even let myself my wildest dreams didn't even go to, to where what has actually happened with it. So it's, um, yeah, it's incredible. And I, I can't even believe that's it. Amazing. Oh yeah. That's, that has to just be like such a high. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this book, you know, it explores the long lasting impact of a traumatic event on the main character, Chloe. Um, can you share, you know, you shared a little bit earlier about like, you know, the psychological aspects of it, but um, why specifically like the psychological aftermath of a crime? Yeah. So I'm always interested in, um, well, I guess I can, I can talk a little bit about the inspiration behind a flicker in the dark, if that'll help. I watched a documentary one time about serial killers because I've always <laughs> been interested in, in true crime and in psychology and the psychology of crime. And, um, there was a picture that came up on the screen of Dennis Rader. It's just, it, it, that picture just really had an effect on me because they were in a church, a church where Dennis Rader served as a deacon for years. And, um, you know, it's the most intimate moment of this woman's life, having her dad walk her down the aisle at her wedding. And at that point in time, he had brutally tortured and murdered several people and nobody knew, including her. And, mm -hmm. um, at the time I was planning my own wedding. So it kind of had me thinking about that really special intimate moment with your dad and what it would be like if you found out that your dad was, was not who you thought he was. And, mm -hmm. and if you looked back on a seemingly happy childhood and realized it was all a cover up or a lie. And, um, and then I wanted to know what would your future look like then if you had to grapple with that, uh, how I, I that would affect your whole life. It would affect mm -hmm. your ability to form relationships, your ability to trust anyone and trust yourself. It would affect what kind of job you went into, who you would ultimately marry. I mean, just so many, it would affect everything, whether or not you wanted it to. So that picture was kind of the spark for a flicker in the dark. And then, um, and then I just wanted to get into the mind of that, that point of view, the daughter of a serial killer and see how that childhood trauma would follow her around everywhere she went. And do you think that contributed to her becoming a psychologist? Yeah. So I, I, um, I did. I, in my mind, I wanted her to be, you know, to, you mentioned, I, oh, there's a kind of a lot of strong female protagonists in my mm -hmm. book and I did, I wanted her to be strong. I wanted her to be smart. I didn't want her to be like this damsel in distress, mm -hmm. but also that is such a major trauma to go through. It would take a, a lot of time to be okay after that. And I don't know if you would ever fully mm -hmm. be okay after that. I mean, I, you know, I could be wrong. I've obviously never gone through something quite that traumatic before, but I thought it would be really neat. This idea of, you know, this little girl who went through something really traumatic and people tried to fix her, you know, she went to therapists, she went to psychiatrists and psychologists and nobody was kind of able to fix her. So she, she kind of just threw the book at it and tried to fix mm -hmm. herself. She learned everything she could about trauma and grief and and went at it from like an intellectual standpoint um but i you know i think there's a line in the book itself like you can't really throw a textbook at trauma mm -hmm. it doesn't really work that way um 
but it's funny. I talked to a lot of therapists and mental health professionals in um, doing research for the book. And a lot of them said that they went into that profession because they went through something traumatic. So I think that's kind of a, a somewhat common um, situation. Yeah, that's what um, I was going to say. Like, I feel like in with psychologists and psychiatrists and even social workers, I feel like mm -hmm. a lot of people do that because of something that affected them earlier. In the same realm of that, did you feel like it was important that she didn't take her own advice all the time? Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, there's, I guess there's two things about that that I find interesting. One is that there are certain, I found that there's certain people in life, like doctors or therapists or lawyers like people who we as citizens of society look at and trust and assume know kind of have their shit together you know <laughs> yeah and like, no, like yeah. you're telling me like how to be healthy you're telling me laws you're telling me you know what to do with my mental health and we kind of hope that they have it together but at the end of the day they're just humans and they yes. have problems too and um and like i said i talked to a lot of therapists and people in mental health who always said, you know, I can spend all day listening to other people's problems, but then I'll go home at the end of the day and cry about my own because I don't know mm -hmm. how to handle it. And it's, it's just, we're humans at the end of the day. So I, I found that interesting putting her in a profession where you would hope and you would think that she knows she has the tools to handle her own trauma and her own grief, but it's so much easier to give advice to other people <laughs> than it is to accept it yourself. Yes, um, it is. I, have, I, I also, I have such a great group of um, girlfriends who are all, we're very open with each other and we kind of talk about our days and what's bothering us. And it's funny. I find like when I hear them, I'll just spout out all the solutions. Mm -hmm. But then when it's my turn to complain, I'm like, none of that's applicable. You know? Yeah. You know, yeah. Just, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I think that's just kind of a common practice to yeah. not be able to take your own advice or maybe not think or act rationally when something big is happening to you. Yes, I totally agree with that. Um, so just a, a random uh, thing for the flicker in the dark. I loved the, that there was lightning bugs or fireflies, as some people call mm -hmm. it. Um, I know this is probably dumb, but I didn't know if it was just like regionalized to Philadelphia area where I am or like, cause yeah, I feel like some you don't see them everywhere. Um, but anyway, was there any reference to the name of the book with with the lightning um, bugs? Yeah. Like, was there any reference to that? So funny enough, um, the, the, the lightning bugs and that like symbolism came first and then the title mm -hmm. came later. So mm. the book had originally the working title for a flicker in the dark was the shadows, um, which was always just a working title, but, um, my publishers found a fun way to kind of incorporate it into the tagline after we changed the title, they made it, um, some shadows never disappear, which was kind of fun. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, that's, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but I, when it was time to come up with the title, I wanted something that was kind of eerie, kind of the sense of being just kind of in the dark, but I mm -hmm. didn't want it to be, I didn't want like fireflies. So I didn't want the word in the title. I didn't right. want it to be so little literal. So a flicker in the dark sounded good to me and it felt yeah. like it alluded to a variety of different things in the book yeah. um and yeah. then it, and it lent itself quite well in my opinion to a, a cover with the yes. fireflies on it so yeah yes. it all kind of it was pulled from a line at the very end of the book um 
yeah. So yeah, the, the, the book came first and then the title. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's what I was, that was what I was going to say. Did you know, like when you were planning, you know, your stuff, did you have the name first and then, you know, the lightning bugs second? Yeah. 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 There's always, <laughs> I have a working title when I write, um, but so far I'm over three. So, oh, so my titles right. always change before the book's published. <laughs> well, let's get into all the dangerous things. What was the original yeah. name of that book? <laughs> the original title for all the dangerous things was, Hush Little Baby. Okay. Um, yeah. That is creepy it's a, too. <laughs> I thought so too. Yeah. It's a nursery rhyme, a classic nursery rhyme. Yeah. So much of the book takes place in the dark at night. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's about a mother searching for her missing son. So it seemed to work. But um, yeah. yeah, for a variety of reasons, we decided to change it. Yeah. So what made you decide, you know, to explore that emotional and psychological aspect of the situation of, of a mother who is not only she's sleep deprived and mm -hmm. has insomnia as well at, at, at being a new mother. Yeah. Well, that's uh, terrifying. I know. I <laughs> as know. a mom of two kids. It's like so... <laughs> I know. Yeah. So there's a, there were a few things that kind of were happening simultaneously in my life that led to the idea for all the dangerous things. Um, the first, I'll say, I got uh, a two-book deal with a flicker in the dark, so I was on the hook to write a second book, and I had no idea what the second book was going to be. So I was like, okay, I got to figure this out. Yeah. And I, I was 2019, and I read an article. I just kind of happened to stumble across it in the Washington Post um, that followed around a man at a true crime conference. And okay. he um, was not there as an attendee. He was there because his sister had been murdered in a string of unsolved murders in the 80s. And um, he had essentially dedicated the last 30 plus years of his life trying to figure out what happened to her. And he would travel around to these true crime conferences and get up on stage. And on the one hand, he knew that what he was doing would help because every time he put himself out there, every time he went on Dateline, every time he went on a podcast, there would be an influx of leads and interest. Mm -hmm. Um, and we've all seen, you know, cold cases be solved by these mm -hmm. amateur detectives and an, the interest in true crime. Um, but at the same time, there was just this like that he felt about, right. about, you know, potentially exploiting her death or, you know, just getting up on stage and, and mm -hmm. knowing that these true crime fans and in, in quotes, they care, but also it's entertainment. And, mm -hmm. and that is a, is kind of a fine line. So I thought that oral conundrum was really interesting of being mm -hmm. that guy up on the stage. Um, and that was what led to Isabel and why in the very first chapter, she's up on stage telling mm -hmm. the story of her missing son. So, um, so yeah, it started with Isabel and wanting to give her some kind of cold case mm -hmm. that she was deeply, deeply invested in. And I was, you know, thinking as a, as a 30 something woman, what would be the thing that happened to me that would, take over my entire life and it would be mm -hmm. something horrible happening to my child. And, and mm -hmm. I don't, I don't personally have children yet, but um, I just imagine that, that, that would, that would be it. That would be the one thing that would make me sure. just drop everything in my life and, and try to figure out what happened to him. Um, even, you know, if it caused my relationship to crumble, if it caused mm -hmm. my career to crumble, like that's just the thing I would, I would focus right. all my time on. So, um, so yeah, so that was that piece. And then the sleep deprivation piece was kind of a, another interesting thing that happened simultaneously. On the one hand, um, I thought that sleep deprivation kind of went well with the, the new mom storyline because mm -hmm. Isabel knows what it's like to be sleep deprived and mm -hmm. up in the middle of the night with her baby. 
Um, on the other side of the spectrum, my husband is a bit of a sleep talker. So, oh. and, and, yeah. And I'm a bit of an insomniac. So, okay. um, yeah. So I don't have it quite bad as Isabel, but I do, I have a hard time falling asleep and I stay up pretty late and my mind is always kind of wandering. And, mm -hmm. um, one night, uh, I was up and my husband was asleep and he like muttered something really creepy in oh, his God. sleep. <laughs> yeah. And I, I shook him awake and I was like, why the hell did you say that? Yeah. And he, he had no memory of it whatsoever. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that had me thinking about the differences, you know, sleep disorders, how deep right. sleep and an inability to sleep mm -hmm. are essentially opposites, but have, you know, they each come with their own slew of problems and, right. and what would be worse essentially. So I gave poor Isabel both of them. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. I have a, an almost three-year-old daughter and my son turned one in um, mm -hmm. June. So it's like, I totally related to her in the sense of like, you're just not sleeping. And then it's like, you know, on top of all of that, it was just very much, um, <laughs> it, I could feel her, the poor, you know, woman. Yeah everything. So you talked about Isabel, how, um, you know, she was telling the story of her missing child and, you know, she came and spoke to, you know, different crime type events. And then, um, including the true crime podcaster that she be, she befriended sort of in a way, I guess, like yeah. started to get to know, um, I'm someone who listens to true crime podcasts. Um, a lot of people do. And as you kind of mentioned earlier, when you're talking about these stories, people are so enthralled with it because they're like, it's entertaining almost and yeah. blurring the line of entertainment. And like, this is actually something that happened to someone. But anyway, what was your thought process around like the true crime podcaster and having that as a part of big part of the story? Yeah. You know, on the one hand, part of it had to do with, like you just talked about, I'm, uh, I, I listen to the podcast. I watch true crime doc documentaries. I read the books and it's, um, sort of my own like moral grappling. Like I, I put him in there, put Waylon and the podcast in there sort of as a way to help me sort through my thoughts of why do I enjoy listening to this stuff? Like, yeah. is, it, <laughs> ex is it exploitative? Is it okay? You know? And, and I, and I think there's certainly a way to be a true crime consumer a way to do it that's you know that's ethical and that's helpful and yeah. that doesn't you know tip over into the line of of being ex exploitative but um also it was interesting to me the thought of isabel kind of forcing herself to get up on the stage over and over again and in this very fake and detached way you know rehearsed scripted this way this rehearsed and scripted way telling her story in like in front of a sea of people the exact opposite of that is sitting mm -hmm. down with one other person at a dining room table and telling it to him unscripted. And mm -hmm. she was really drawn to that. She, you know, Isabel didn't want to keep getting up on the stage and subjecting herself to that. And Waylon, in the appearance of, of him and his pod, way more people than any mm -hmm. individual auditorium could, but in a way that felt more intimate and casual mm -hmm. and not quite as performative. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was interesting because something about a podcast, you know, it's like you and I are just sitting here having a conversation, right. but all kinds of people are going to be listening to it. Yeah. And, you know, in a way it's easier to do something like this than it is get up on a stage. Um, yeah. And, and then they, you can keep listening, you know, if in mm -hmm. 10 years from now, if someone wants to hear the story of, you know, of 
of anyone, you know, it's there. Yeah. Um, yeah. It lives forever. And that honestly was like one of the reasons not to like kind of do a divergent. Um, but that was one of the reasons that I like started podcasting. So I wanted to like interview my, my family members kind of, I was like, they all have like really cool stories. And I was like, yeah, I, I like really like doing this. <laughs> let me, let yeah. me interview more people. Yeah. But it's, it's pretty cool to have, especially with my parents, like those recordings will be mm -hmm. forever. And you know, my great, great grandkids can listen to their oh, stories. That's so if cool. that's yeah. their, you know, but to go, you know, but the same thing in regards to the true, the true crime podcasts are in your book. It's like, you can go, like you said, into a room of 50 people, or you can get it to the whole entire world in yeah. just one sitting, which is pretty yeah, cool. One, one conversation. Yeah. That's awesome that you've recorded your family members <laughs> yeah. like that. I feel like more people should do that. It's a good I idea. Know. I guess like in the actual moment, I was just thinking like, oh, you know, I'm going to ask them these questions and that. And then like afterwards I was like, wait, this is actually really cool yeah. that I have yeah. these forever. That is really cool. Um, so yeah, so I loved the, I also obviously loved the, uh, true crime podcast or, you know, yeah. in there type thing. Yeah. Um, so to kind of just like finish up with all the dangerous things with the memory loss and self doubt, mm -hmm. she obviously was like questioning herself. That's one of the big themes of the whole book. How did you kind of work about crafting that narrative? Yeah. So w with the um, memory loss and things like that, I love writing an unreliable narrator <laughs> and mm -hmm. <laughs> I, love, I love reading unreliable narrators yeah. and it's fun to write them. And um, with an unreliable narrator, of course, the reader doesn't know if they can trust the narrator or not. And I like toying mm -hmm. with the idea of the narrator also not knowing if they can trust themselves. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, one, you know, kind of classic way is with substances like alcohol pills yeah. or something like that but um another one for me i thought was sleep deprivation because everyone has through that when you're so tired like you hear something and you're like is that did that really happen or you see yeah. something out of the corner of your eye or you're you're just kind of foggy and i i wanted to put isabel in like this constant state of just constant like state. fog because she and, and it makes it really hard for her to trust her own memories and instincts in um, the second part to your question, for me, it was just a good way to make her doubt herself, but also make other people doubt her. Yeah. So the the doubting yourself um, element came to me also, again, because we're dealing with um, a mother here who's looking for her missing son. And that's yeah. kind of a theme in all the dangerous things as well of is, you know, mothers always kind of blaming themselves and wondering, should I have done something different? Should I have done something mm -hmm. more? And so having this like cloak of uncertainty over everything that has come to Isabel through her sleep deprivation kind of heightens that, I think, her mm -hmm. inability to trust herself. It was definitely very realistic in the sense of like, like I said, how I would feel as yeah. a mother in her situation. So that was oh, awesome. Thank you. Um, so let's get into your uh, Only If You're Lucky book. Okay, so that's yeah. set to release in January, right? Yep, January um, 16th. Okay, January 16th. Let, can you give us a sneak peek or some sort of insights? To yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it um, only if you're lucky, I, I mentioned earlier, it is, um, it's a little bit different than my first two books. So there's some things that readers can come to expect that will be the same. So it's, it's heavy, heavy psychological elements, just like my other books. Um, it, yep. <laughs> it's set in the South. It's got uh, multiple twists. It's pretty setting heavy. Um, but this one is a college campus thriller. So it has a bigger cast of characters and they're all younger they're all teenagers so of course um the 
the their motivations and their trials and tribulations are all quite different than um, a protagonist in her 30s. But it basically is about a girl named Margot who goes away to a small liberal arts school in South Carolina. Um, and she is grieving the loss of her high school best friend who died the summer after their senior year. And because of that, her freshman year, she kind of spends the year in a cocoon and she doesn't really meet anyone. She doesn't really branch out. And um, at the very end of her freshman year, a girl named Lucy, who lives on her hall, invites Margot to live with her and two other girls um, on a house off campus. And Lucy is charismatic. She's charming. There's just something really magnetic about her. And Margot just has to say yes. She has no reason to say no. So she moves into this house and her and the other three three girls become kind of instant best friends. And it's everything she ever wanted when she thought about going away to college. Um, and the girls live in a house uh, owned by and adjacent to a fraternity house. And so okay. the fraternity boys are their landlords. And um, six months into the year, one of the fraternity boys next door is brutally murdered and Lucy is missing without a trace. So Margo and the other roommates are kind of left in the dust to deal with the investigation and the aftermath. And um, yeah, so that's the gist of it. And I mentioned previously the house is, is based on the house I lived in in college. I actually lived in a house owned by a fraternity in college. Yeah. I didn't, when you were saying that, I was like, oh, I didn't even know like that was a thing. I didn't know if it was a thing, but now you're saying it is. Yeah. I I didn't know. know. I don't know if it is truly a thing, but it was a thing for me. But it was for you. Yeah. Yeah. So this, there's a fraternity at Georgia who has, who owns the house behind their house and they rent it out. Um, they rent it out every year and yeah. my, my friends and I lived in it for two years. And so awesome. the fraternity boys were our landlords and it was a very lawless <laughs> two years and it was a crazy. That would have been so fun. <laughs> yeah, it was, but it, in hindsight, all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Need, needed to be memorialized in print. So, um, so yeah. Oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah, it's a fun, it was a really fun book to write. So I'm excited about it. So did you go back to your um like house to like kind of, re-get any memories or just yeah, from uh, your first, or like sure. bring up any memories. Sorry, I guess I guess what I've, I've been back since um, just to kind of snap some pictures and, yeah. and it's still standing, believe it or not. And um, <laughs> I haven't been inside yet, but I have so many pictures, you know, from that yeah. time that I, I can go back and reference. And there's just so many little moments and memories that my, yeah. my roommates and I will still talk about. So, so cool. um yeah, there's for you know, I, I kind of beg people not to jump ahead and read the acknowledgements before they finish the book because I always okay. stuff my acknowledgements full of spoilers. But yeah. I do tell true stories of stuff that really happened okay. in that house and the acknowledgements that might oh. uh, yeah, make the reading experience a little more uh, interesting once people That's finish the so book. Cool. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I will definitely make sure to uh, you know read them too. Sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like like you might like skip over them if you don't um, take the extra time. You're so excited at the end, and then you're like, yeah, okay. I, 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 you know, you're processing the ending, <laughs> but that's I so love- important. It's the writer in me, but I love reading the acknowledgments. I yeah. just find it so interesting to see like what all goes into a book. But mm-hmm. from a from a writing perspective, I feel like by the time I get to the acknowledgments, there's so much I want to say to the reader. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like here's inspiration. Here's here's what yeah. I was thinking when I did this. I kind of just like 
dump it all in acknowledgements and, and hope that someone finds it interesting. So, <laughs> well, one of the, I don't know if this goes hand in hand, but one of the uh, coolest audiobooks that I listened to was David Goggins. Um, one of David Goggins books, Can't Hurt Me, I think it was mm-hmm. called. And he did it kind of in like a podcast version. So he read chapter one and his was more like stories of how he got to be where he is, but mm-hmm. he would do chapter one. And then while you're hearing his story, you're like, I have all these other questions for you. And literally he would answer all of those questions at oh, the end cool. of the, um, so that's like, I, like, I feel like the, that was something that really stuck with me. And I guess that's yeah. similar to the way the acknowledgements are for all of them is like, you read about their, their kids or like their friends mm-hmm. or their family or like the places. And that is such like a cool um aspect of it yeah Um, yeah i always just find it so interesting hearing about like how you know what the inspiration for a story was and things like that and so i i I sprinkle a little bit of that usually in acknowledgements or an author's note just you know to let people know how the how the idea came about yeah i love that um so there are you know lots of murder mystery missing person books out there what do you think is um something that the readers will really love about it. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope it stands out. Well, it will. uh, (laughs) Thank you. It's, yeah, it's, you know, this one, like I mentioned, it's different than my first two. And so I hope that readers enjoy kind of a a, a slightly different take on what a typical Stacey Willingham book has been thus far. Um, I love dark academia. It's kind of a subgenre that I've always loved, like the secret history if we mm-hmm. were villains, um, some more recent ones, like In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, The It Girl by Ruth Ware, just those oh. types of books where it focuses on young people kind of grappling to find their place in the world, trying to find friendship and community and belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I, what I find kind of cool about um, Only If You're Lucky is Dark Academia is often set in like an Oxford or a Yale or mm-hmm. like a really prestigious kind of like gothic school setting um and only if you're lucky is set in a small liberal arts school on the beach so it's yeah. still um it, it's still kind of the settings that I love to do and the in the places that I love to write about um and it tells it I guess it focuses less on the like academic um experiences right. and more on the friendship experiences and the communal living and that element of college mm-hmm. life that is so like Important. strange and unique to that time of life so yeah um it is when you like think it's like so important but then when you do like think back on it you're like what the heck this is so i know, <laughs> I know. yeah and those years are just so formative. Like, you they know, are. when you're 18, 19 years old, you're like clay and um, mm-hmm. your friends are everything to you. And yep. um, I just, it's, you know, I've, I've had some early readers tell me like minus, minus the murder, it kind of makes them nostalgic. <laughs> like thinking, thinking back <laughs> to okay. that time in yeah. their lives. So, you know, I, I hope that readers get something like that out of it. Yeah. It was a nostalgic book for me to write. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, my husband and I, even though he didn't go to my college, we he would come visit. We weren't dating, but he had mutual friends. And we always mm-hmm. talk about our college. We're like, what we would do to go back. Yeah. Just, but we're like, also like, we don't want to be drinking like Natty Ice <laughs> and know, sleeping I on know. a floor. <laughs> yeah, I know. It is. It's funny. Like <laughs> you mentioned going back to UGA. I was just there. And yeah. 10 years doesn't seem like a long time until you see 
to yeah. are currently in college and you're like, whoa, <laughs> like, you're like, yes, I was... a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I could not do that again, but have fun, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, all right. Is there anything that I missed or that you wanted to talk about a little more? Did you want to talk about your fourth book at all? Yeah, I mean, I guess all I'll say is I'm writing my fourth book. Um, it is <laughs> early, early, early days, so I can't even give a, a, a cohesive synopsis right now you know the ending though right I do know the ending I do, yep, I know the ending. I'm 30,000 words into it and I'm limping along to try and get to the ending but um it will be I'm really excited about it I that's awesome yeah I'm super excited about the story it's um again a little different than than my my first three now but with a lot of similarities um the setting okay. is is pretty cool I'm excited about that it's a little bit different than what I've ever done um, and it'll be out uh, sometime in 2025. So okay, wow, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. This is, I'm so happy for you, and I'm thank you so happy that you have so many things coming up. That's awesome. I'm so excited to read. Um, only if you're lucky. That thank sounds you. So awesome. Um, all right. Well, I guess that's going to bring us to the end. Um, of another episode of The Running Wine Mom. We hope you've enjoyed this deep dive into Stacey's novels, her writing process, and the incredible journey in the literary world. A huge thank you to Stacey for joining us today and sharing her insights, creativity, and passion for crafting stories and keeping us guessing until the very last page. Before we wrap up, don't forget to follow Stacey at Stacey Willingham on Instagram. I'll um, link it in the show notes. And be sure to grab a copy of her latest book, All the Dangerous Things, available now. And mark your calendars for the re release of Only If You're Lucky coming soon in January. I'll also link all that stuff too. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, leave a review, and sharing it. You can also follow me on Instagram at the running wine mom underscore. Well, thank you, Stacey. This was so awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it so much. Yes, I like I said, I like fangirled over your books so like this is Thank one you. of this is truly the best thing about me starting this like with two little toddlers this is my creative out yeah, uh, yeah. And just like meeting all these amazing mostly women you know I've had some men on but yeah. like just badass women and it's like so cool to see how successful must be these the people are <laughs> it's really and fall in love and be like I want to talk to that person and yeah yeah and then I'm like oh you know telling my friends okay like like and then you can listen to that like I got to talk to you know him or her so thank you for um taking time aside to do this all right thank you so much for joining me today remember you are strong you are capable and you are all amazing until next time keep running keep sipping and keep embracing the joy of motherhood cheers and i will be back next tuesday